That's page 1130 in the Pew Bibles, Hebrews 10, beginning at verse 1. It'll stay. It's falling. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers have once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The word of the Lord. Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Excellent job. Thank you, Stephanie. A quick mention that for young people and children here, uh, we do love to have them in our service and a part of all that we do. We have some bulletins, uh, some children's bulletins on the table over there that allow you guys, you young people, to be able to follow along with the sermon because we believe this is just as much for you as it is for mom and dad. So, Feel free to get up and go grab one of those over there if you'd like one. Let's pray together. Father, we've we've heard from you. We've heard your word announced and read as it calls us into worship. And we have offered our prayers to you. We have sung to you. We have offered back to you the very things and resources that you've given to us. And now, Lord, we come to open our hearts to your word, as it is preached, Holy Spirit, would you come and take your word, which you say is far more powerful than a double-edged sword, and that pierces all the way down to the depths of who we are. Would you come and do that in us, by the power of your Spirit this morning, that we would be changed, that we would be energized with joy as we come to understand all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So a quick question to get us started here. For the kids, kids, have you ever been made fun of? 
got one honest hand goes up up here. Have you ever been, maybe it's at school, maybe in your family, I'm not, surely not, but you know, maybe at some point, have you ever been in a situation where there were a group of people who are laughing at you and making fun of you? What, what is that like? Drew, what does that feel like? It feels mean. It hurts. It doesn't feel good at all. Uh, I can remember, and I've shared a little bit about my story, but whenever I was uh, growing up, that I was uh, an overweight kid, and I was made fun of a whole lot. And it was incredibly painful. I mean, it can be easy to kind of think, oh, that's, that's just kids, that's just going to happen, and it is a part of life. But it was deeply painful for me, and I remember one of the biggest fears that I had was those times whenever you would get together, kids would get together to play some sort of a sport. And, you know, usually you have the two best players that are the captain of each team. And it would come to that moment where they're picking their team. And I can remember in those times getting really nervous and afraid that I was going to be the last kid picked. Can you relate to that? That experience that we experience in things like that, we're in a billion other ways as just as human beings that we experience that feeling of not measuring up, of rejection, of something being wrong with us, that is what the Bible calls shame. Now we've been in a sermon series on the gospel where we've been talking about the gospel in life. How does the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has already accomplished, How does that impact our lives? And one of the things we say all the time at Grace Community is that we believe that the gospel is not just how you get into the Christian life, not just the basic information that makes you a Christian and where you get to go to heaven when you die, that the gospel is actually God's power to change us. The gospel is not just for unbelievers, those who have not yet believed. It's also for believers. It's how we grow as we continually deepen and appropriate the realities and the truths of the gospel to our heart. Deep conviction for us as a church. Now, here's what's interesting. There's a, Tim Keller shares a great story in his book, Counterfeit Gods, about a counseling. He's a pastor in New York City, and he, he shares this story about being with this young lady that he's counseling. She's in his office, and she has just gone through a breakup, and it's been a devastating breakup. This, this was someone that she thought that she was going to marry. She thought that he hung the moon, and out of the blue, he dumps her. You know what that experience feels like? And she is devastated. And she is thinking literally, this young lady, my life is over because of this. And Dr. Keller is very kind and very patient. He's encouraging her. And then he begins to encourage her with the gospel because she was a believer. We're talking about a believer here. And he says, you know, the reality is, no matter what happens in your life, Your identity is rooted in Christ. And he has clothed you with his righteousness. And he has brought you into relationship with the Father. And he begins to just just speak over her the truths of the gospel that she believes, at least here. And here's how she responds to him. Kind of rolls her eyes as he says all that stuff. And she says, what good is any of that if I can't get a date? And I just think, how hilarious is that? You know, she was honest. And I think it's a great picture of how we so often tend to live. 
that yes, we believe those things, you know, we check the box and we think all those things are true, but so often in our everyday life, it doesn't penetrate down to the street level of our lives. And when in reality, in our everyday life, we're running after identity and so many other things, like a person to love me and give me value, like success or how we look or how we're dressed or what we have or what toys we have or experiences we get to go have. There's so many things in our life that seem to hold the real power for giving us value in life. And yet, whenever we come to the truth of the gospel, it's like, well, what good is that if I can't have this in my life? Can you relate to that at least a little bit? The reality is, is that so often the truth of the gospel is something that we believe in our head, but so seldom is really the functional control of our heart? Is it really commanding my desires and what I'm chasing after? Is it really setting my identity, even in the face of rejection of other people in my life? Part of what we're going to see in our passage is how we are transformed as we apply the gospel more and more deeply to the depths of our soul. We're going to see as we do that, as we are deepened and rooted in the gospel, how it begins to heal our shame. We'll talk about our shame and how significant it is in our life. Let's jump into our passage here. We're looking at Hebrews 10. And in the passage here, the author is wanting to make a contrast for us. And the contrast is between the Old Testament sacrificial system and the cross of Jesus. And part of what he says right there in the first verse is he says the law, which the law was the shorthand way of referring to all that was contained in the Old Testament. And it referred to the entire sacrificial system. And he says the law, the sacrificial system, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, the things that have arrived in Jesus. Part of what he's going to teach in the passage is that all of the Old Testament sacrificial system was given as a, as a precursor, as a shadow, as a, like a big arrow pointing and training his people towards all that he would do in Jesus. It was all intended to prepare them for Jesus. And he says, it's a shadow, it's not the real thing. And throughout the passage, he's going to break that down. One of the critical things to understand about the sacrificial system is how it does that. As we understand more about the Old Testament, as we understand more about the sacrificial system, it helps us to understand more about what is it that God has accomplished for us in Christ. One of the things about the, old, about the sacrificial system is that it was given to teach God's people about not only their guilt. Now, it certainly did that. We saw that last week about how the law, when you come to see God's law, it exposes you. You, you see your sin more clearly. It comes out. So it, not only does it show us our guilt, but here's even more so, the sacrificial system, the law, exposes our shame. In fact, the Bible speaks ten times more about shame than even about guilt. That's a stunning kind of statement there. Because guilt something that I think we all tend to have an idea about what that is. We can kind of put our finger on it. Uh, guilt is the sense, as Ed Welch says in his book, Shame Interrupted, guilt is the sense of you're in the courtroom. You're standing before the judge. You have broken a law. You've done something wrong. A verdict is being rendered. 
But shame is something that is so much more deep in the bones. Such a fundamental part of the human experience. Where guilt says, I've done something wrong. Shame says, there's something wrong with me. A deep-seated kind of sense that something's wrong. I don't belong. I don't measure up. I'm, I, I need to hide. He says, shame, with shame, you're in the public square. Not in the courtroom. You're in the public square. And everyone is seeing your vulnerability and your shame and your nakedness. You begin to put your finger on that experience in your life. So often shame tends to live below the surface. But it's in so many years in our life begins to shape what we do. This sense of there's something wrong with me. I'm stained. I don't belong. As we walk through the Bible and you see the picture of shame here, just think for just a moment about the picture in Genesis 3. About the fall. And what we see there as you look in Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve, as you know, they chose to rebel against God and they eat and break the command that they were forbidden not to do. And in a moment, just as you watch them, it's, it's so instructive about even our own hearts because in the moment that they choose to disobey God, it says instantly their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. What are we looking at there? We're looking at shame. They were naked before, but they didn't feel that sense of exposure, that sense that like, I need to hide. And that's exactly what they begin to do. They begin hiding. They begin running. They begin hiding from one another. They begin blame shifting, which is just a way of hiding and diverting shame from yourself. They try to cover themselves with fig leaves trying to think that if I can cover myself, then I can cover my shame. And all of that sense that there's something in me that's stained, that is wrong, that is unclean, immediately comes in through sin. And it's the fundamental reality that so many of us live with. As we look at Genesis 3, we're looking at a picture of us. And how deep down so often we know something's wrong. Something's wrong, I need to hide. I need to cover up, and in so many ways in our lives, we sow fig leaves for ourselves. We're, we're trying to hide behind our accomplishments. Sometimes it's literally our fig leaves or our clothes, where we think that by our style or our fashion, we, be, we can cover ourselves and become beautiful. For some of us, it's, it's, it's how we look, a particular image, or it's a, a reputation, or it's our accomplishments, or... Literally, the list goes on and on and on of the ways that we construct fig leaves for ourselves because deep down we know the reality of shame in our hearts. Now, shame, as you look throughout the Scripture, shame can come in one of three different ways. Shame can come because of something that you've done. Now, we know that reality, every one of us. You know the reality of having done something that feels like this separates me from everyone else. This is too bad. It's, it's, it's the secrets that we want to keep in our lives. Something that we've done that we feel that sense of shame, that, that sense of contamination over. But there's also the sense in which you can, you can experience shame because of what someone has done to you. This is a very real uh, reality for those who've been sexually abused. 
And listen, the stats in our culture are somewhere around the neighborhood of one in six have been sexually abused. So that would mean that there are many in our room today that have experienced the trauma of sexual abuse. And it's a tremendous picture of what happens with shame that someone violates you and yet you experience shame. You can get shame just through the association of someone else's sin. And then finally, there can be sin simply by being attached or connected to someone that you perceive to have shame. Ed Welch in his book, Shame Interrupted, gives a great example from his own life as he's telling the story of growing up and, like myself, being a boy that kind of felt excluded from the crowd. And his mom, and this, true was, this was also true of me, his mom was really obese, really overweight. And that was something that for him, and I mean, listen, we know this reality in a culture that is obsessed with being skinny, to carry excess weight is so often a mark of shame in our culture. He talks about this very real reality whenever one day she was driving him home from school and she had heard about a, a, a meeting where, where parents were invited to come and be with their kids at the school, something was taking place. And so she picks him up and she had just heard about the event it had already taken place. He had never mentioned it to her. And they're in the car, he's in the back seat and she's driving and she said, Honey, you, you never told me about the event, that, that I could have come and I could have seen you. And he says, that wasn't for you. And she said, what do you mean? I heard that parents were invited. What do you mean it wasn't for you? And he says, and he tells it very powerfully in the story, in a moment he blurted this out. He says, it's not for you because you're fat. And in that moment, he knew that he had done something. And he said that he saw in the rearview mirror, he could see tears coming down his mother's face. And as he shares this story, he says, even as I write this story so many years later, I can feel the shame still upon my heart. And here's what he says. My point is that you can see a human instinct operating here. I understood that I was connected to my mother's status because I thought it was low I wanted to break the association. We turn from those things that we think will damage our reputation. We turn toward those things that we think will enhance it. We identify with a rock star, a fraternity, or a club, or a college football team. We identify with these things because we want to be connected to something we find prestigious. We name drop. In the hopes that saying, I know so-and-so, we will be elevated. In a pinch, two degrees of separation from a famous person will work fine enough. I know so-and-so. Who knows so-and-so? They are ways, pathetic ways, we hope for a better reputation and a bit of honor. The reality is, is we begin to think about the human condition and really the, why we do the things that we do. As we dig, what we begin to see is, there is a shame that we bear deep within our soul. So you see, the, the Old Testament sacrificial system was intended to reveal that. I mean, if you go back and you see it and you study it, so much of it was about cleanness, which is all about shame. I mean, the message that you got as you were someone who lived within the sacrificial system is that I am unclean. So many things in my life make me contaminated, make me unfit for the presence of the Lord. So many things can cut me off 
from the community. And all those things were not a way to damage his people, but rather to open their eyes to the reality. We feel shame because we do bear shame. But the sacrificial system provided a way that a person who was cloaked in shame could actually come and be cleansed. That's what it was about. If you were someone who was experiencing shame, you would come to the altar. You would come before the priest and he would make sacrifice. The sacrifices we've talked about before is all about a substitute. That an animal, a bull or a goat becomes your substitute. Its blood is shed and you are cleansed by that life taking your place. And so a worshiper could be cleansed from their shame. No matter what they had done, no matter what was true of them, they had a way, a very tangible way to be cleansed so that they could be fit for the holy presence of the Lord. But here's the point of the writer of Hebrews. And the main point of the passage. It was only temporary. That's what he's showing us over and over and over about the Old Testament sacrificial system. It was temporary. Verse 1. Part 2. For this reason it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would not they have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once from all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But these sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Again, it was to show their people it's temporary. God is making provision for a once and for all cleansing. But this is temporary pointing you to something more. And then what the writer of Hebrews is wanting to do is to take that contrast and to show us how the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus is the completion of all that the Old Testament was pointing ahead to. There's two primary things he wants you to see about the cross of Jesus. One, it's implication. What does it mean for me? What does it do to me? It's implication. Secondly, what is the extent of that implication? The first thing he shows us is that the cross of Jesus makes us perfect forever. Look again at verse 10. And by that will, what will is he talking about? He's talking about God's will to send Jesus and accomplish all of this through the cross. By that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Christ once for all. Some of our translations say sanctified. Same thing. The word sanctified is a common word in Scripture, and it means to make holy, to make clean, to make perfect. Look again at verse 14. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The significance that he wants us to see through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is that for those who are in union with him, you have been made holy. You, you have... You've received a status, a position, a standing. You've been made perfect. Not, not anything that you've achieved. It's all on the basis of a sacrifice. Remember, that's the whole idea of a sacrifice. There is a substitute that is outside of me. And it's because of that reality that I get a new standing. And a part of what he's trying to help us see here is if you are united to Jesus, you've been made perfect. As we saw last week, that's more than just being innocent. 
that's more than just being forgiven. It's actually gaining a righteousness. He's talking about justification here. That is to be declared righteous in God's sight even while you're still a sinner. It is a status and a standing of perfection and holiness that you become one. You become declared to be one as if you've obeyed the whole law. As if you have no shame at all. To the person who's united to Jesus, you have been declared clean. In the same way that in the Old Testament you bring a sacrifice and you're clean for that moment. Now in Jesus, if you're united to Him, you're clean. A status that He confers upon you. But secondly, what is the extent of that status? And that's what He really wants to press home in our hearts. That's the extent is that we are forever forever complete in that perfection look again at verse 10 and by that will we have been made holy now what's really crucial to see here is the tense of the verb now I know probably a lot of us are not interested in going back to English class but it's really important in this moment you got to understand the tense of a verb you see in the Greek this verb and also the same verb that you find in in verse 14 is a passive verb. You know what a passive verb is? Is it something that happens to you? It's not something you do. It's something that happens to you. Very crucial to see. It is also in the perfect tense. That is, perfect tense, is a completed action in the past that has ongoing implications in the future. That is different from a present tense. I'm being made holy. So he mentions that in verse 14. But what is he talking about here? He's talking about something that is complete. Something that's already taken place. You even see it in the English. You have been made holy. Past completed action. Then he goes on to say all these things like forever, once and for all. Just pressing home the reality that this is complete. It's already done. It can't be lost. It wasn't gained. It was conferred. It's just passively received. A new reality that is complete. Complete forever. In verse 14. Because by one sacrifice. He has made perfect forever. Those who are being made holy. Now one thing to see in that verse. Just kind of a side note. Is how he sets justification and sanctification right next to each other. Did you see that? We have been made holy. That's justification. That is a status. That is a standing that you get when God declares it to you that cannot be lost. But yet, at the same time, you are someone who is being made holy. That is a present action verb. Again, it's passive. Again, it's something that God is doing to you. But you see, right there in the verse, he's saying, you have been declared perfect right where you are. That is a status and a standing. But yet at the same time, God is at work making you so in actual reality. You have been declared righteous justification. And yet God is also at work actually making you righteous. We brought up the question last week. Sandra brought up the question, well, how do you know if you're justified? Because... You know, it's kind of easy to say, I believe in Jesus. How do you know if this has really taken place in your life? According to verse 14, it's because God is at work in you, actually making you holy. 
But you see, those have got to be distinct in our heart. What we so often want to do is we want to look to our progress in sanctification. How am I doing? How am I performing? How am I doing with those, those struggles that I'm battling in my life? We want to look to that to say, how accepted am I? What is my standing before God? He loves me. He loves me not. If I'm having a good day, I'm, I'm, I'm just delighted in by Him. And if I'm blowing it today, He's distancing Himself. Isn't that our reality? But the writer of Hebrews wants to just press to us. It's complete. You are righteous. Now you're clean. You're perfect. You're holy. Because it's the righteousness of another that's been put on you. Conferred on you. Verse 11. Again, 11 and 12. Pressing home this finality. Day after day. Again, this contrast to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Day after day, every priest stands. Remember that word. Every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Only temporary. Only cover it up for a moment. But look at the contrast in the turn here in verse 12. But when this priest, Jesus the high priest, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down. He's dropping a huge hint here. In the temple, there were no chairs. The priest never sat down. He didn't have a chair. There was no pews in there. You stood to worship. And the priest was constantly at work. Constantly making sacrifices. A reminder, it's not done. There's still shame. There's still sin. I've got to keep making sacrifice. He never sat down. And the writer of Hebrews wants to point us to Jesus and say, with that one sacrifice, he sat down. He dropped the mic. That's what he's saying. It's done. It's finished. It's complete. Let's bring this home. If you are in union with Jesus, it does not matter what you feel. And some of us feel some pretty terrible things about ourselves. Some of us hear voices from our past that are constantly accusing us. Some of us have desires that we would be mortified if other people knew that we had these desires. So, some of us, it, it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what other people think of you. It does not matter what you have. You cannot have two nickels to rub together and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your children have done or do. It does not matter. Because if you are in union with Christ, you are clean. You are perfect now. The writer of Hebrews just want to say, look to the sacrifice, not to yourself. If you look to yourself, you'll think, I'm so far away. But look to the sacrifice and know that it's finished. The Father looks upon you now as if you were as righteous as His perfect Son. Not because I've done anything, I've done the opposite. But because He's conferred it upon you by the power of that one sacrifice. Your shame is taken away no matter what you've done. No matter what you're accused of. Your shame is gone. You are clean right now. You see, the cross was all about shame. 
Why do you think Jesus, we know that Jesus was sacrificed in our place. We know that he had to die in our place. But why did he have to be shamed? That's what the cross is all about. It's an instrument of shame. The Roman Empire invented the cross to shame their enemies. Why, why did he have to be hung naked? Why, why did he have to be up for everyone to mock why did he have to be spit on? Why did he have to be made what, what Scripture says in many places, the refuse of the world? Why? Because he was taking our shame. And he took it all by one sacrifice. You've got to believe that. Shame is stubborn. It's so stubborn. It, it's like a squatter. It just digs in and refuses to leave. Now, the reality is, is that for many of us, we believe that here and a little bit here, but we're so reluctant to let go of our shame, to really step into that reality that I've been cleansed. It's almost scary. I mean, sometimes shame is a comfort for us. Sometimes we don't want to let go of the shame. Sometimes it's, you know, it's painful and it's horrible, but at least I'm in control of it. At least I can manage it through all my little strategies. At least I can loathe myself and cut myself and all these ways that we have to manage our own shame. How do we get free? It's always repentance and faith. It, repentance is, is bringing it into the light. It's going public with shame before the Lord. Of, of bringing it before Him, acknowledging it, naming it because it lives in the shadows and it's bringing it before the Father and it's bringing it before trusted brothers and sisters and say, here's my shame. And then it is taking hold of the gospel. It is taking your stand on His promise. You are clean because of His work. we got to release it and then embrace the gospel. And you got to do it in community. Sometimes you need to say it out loud. And sometimes you need a brother or sister to just speak the words of the gospel over you. But listen, we've got to believe it. You've got to believe it. It only heals you as you believe it. So let me stop right there and give us just a few moments. If you're visiting with us, usually we stop at the end of the sermon and give ourselves a few moments to hear from each other. And I realize as we talk about shame, there's a danger it'll be dead silent in here, but we're just going to go ahead and charge into it. Listen, what, what is this doing to you? As you see Jesus, as you ponder the significance of what he's saying, or even this, how hard it is to really believe this. How does that move you? How does that strike you? What's happening in you? Let's hear from each other for a few moments. So it's kind of dangerous to process out loud, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like my entire life has been built up on shame. It's felt very, you know, burdensome and hard and, you know, like slavery, like a yoke is on me. Yeah. And I mean, just as recent as last weekend at the Wellspring Retreat, it was a powerful moment that I was given the environment to repent and confess to bring my shame to light. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, that was, I feel like I finally experienced, you know, 
the love of God because I was showing who Trent really is, you know, instead of yeah. just like who I wanted people to perceive me to be. So it's just so powerful. And I, I felt overjoyed and peaceful and like a burden was lifted off of me. Um, I'd say since then, you know, I just realized that there's more and more things in my, like that in my, from my past and things in my mind and my heart that I feel maybe the enemy and even myself, I'm just trying to, you know, continually hide behind my shame so I can have control over it. Yeah. And just recent, recently as yesterday, just kind of realizing I'm still just full of shame for talking too much or for, you know what I mean, saying things or that I shouldn't have said in a in a group setting and I don't know it's just powerful because like you said it's not like a one-time thing continually going repenting of of that and having faith that God loves you yeah thank you for sharing y'all relate to that experience as we read the scripture today it struck me verse 16 and 17 I mean, he could have erased the law, but he didn't. You know, at the same time that he's forgiving us in the future, he's writing the law in our hearts, which continually points us to Jesus who has forgiven us. That's right. It's the whole point of the law is flourishing. To To be like him, to be who he made us to be. The law is a guide to that. So once you're, once you're made perfect, the law no longer evaluates where you are. It's now a pathway to love. And that's, it, it can't be that for you until you are deeply rooted in your position in Christ. It can only accuse until that point. But once, once you're free, then it becomes something that it's written on the heart. Um, Carrie. Just this morning, uh, Joy sent me a song by the musician Lord um, called Liability. And it just, like, it's so appropriate. And one of the lines in that song is um, basically, like, she says, I know, like, people say that I'm too much. And I think that line, I don't I don't know about everybody, but I know for me that, like, sense that, like, I'm too much, my shame is too much, like like Trent was saying, I talk too much, or I, like, just in all these ways, I'm just too much for people. Yeah. Um, and then I assume I'm too much for God. Uh-huh. Um, and that he can't handle it. My community can't handle it. Mm. If I were to um, be open about my struggles or even my joys. Mm. Um, if I were to like really feel and express that. Mm. And so I think like hearing this this morning is really powerful for me. This sense of like if shame lives in silence it's just like this silencing force um in that there's actually freedom in light yeah um and in in opening those shameful things Mm -hmm. that sort of gives me courage i like still i'm kind of like yeah but but i i'm really glad we talked about this and like there's actually like there is an openness of open space um to go in a safe place to go yeah. out of the darkness. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing. You should listen to that song, everybody. It's good. Yeah. You know, we cannot, you cannot change in the shadows. You cannot change 
behind the fig leaves. You just can't do it. And part of how we heal and we grow is starting to come out. And I know that for many of us, there's probably a lot of us here that are thinking, I don't have any shame. I don't relate to that. Um, and uh, there's, there's probably a lot of us that just, you don't like me saying that word out loud. You're like, stop it. Stop saying it. And I would just say, what does that show you about what's deeper? And most of us are absolutely terrified about going any deeper. What will I find? Um, what will I find about myself? You know, because we learn to hide things and pack them down. And we're just like Adam and Eve, just running around, just hiding from each other, blame shifting, trying to prove ourselves, trying to say I'm okay because of this or I'm okay because of this and fix ourselves and manage our shame. And, and God's saying, where are you? Come out. I've already made provision for your cleansing. But you've got to come to me. You've got to come out. Let me close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, this, <clears throat> this might 